Andrew Cuomo, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, the uh, CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. That didn't surprise me. We know for our listeners, Jamal Bowman is African-American. Elliot Engel is not. But you had the, the Black Caucus uh, supporting their colleague, which wasn't too surprising. Um, but when Harry and I talked a little earlier, we were saying that there was an endorsement of Engel, but it didn't seem like a, a ringing endorsement. They essentially just said, we support our colleague and kind of left it at that. They didn't really go hard in the paint for Angle and, and do door knocking mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, the big names there, right? Like Cuomo, Clinton. Yeah. These are these are the, the seniors, you know, like the leaders of the party supporting their, their longtime guy. It looks like, you know, lost significantly. Again, pending a lot of absence, uh, a lot of mail-in ballots. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the questions that all this raises, again, is, you know, A, what's the value of endorsements? And there's a lot of variables within that. I mean, the fact that Cuomo, Clinton, and Schumer, at least on Schumer and Cuomo's parts, I'm not sure on the Clinton process, but Schumer and Cuomo seem to begrudgingly do it and do it kind of last minute and, you know, didn't, you know, do anything in such a full-throated way. You know, you had endorsers who were going out and being in the field to drum up more attention with the candidates they've endorsed. That's not something any of those uh, big names did. So, you know, there's there's the importance of endorsers, I think, is always worth questioning. And then also, you know, it really matters what they're actually doing for the candidate they endorse. And, you know, if they're endorsing in time to get on some mail and some pamphlets, that's one thing. You know, there's a lot of variables there. Are, are we seeing a second progressive wave? in some of these races with Engel appearing to lose with uh, Maloney neck and neck um, or some sort of generational replacement? Like, like what, what are we supposed to make of uh, in this very strange election season, you know, some, some of these challengers making it over the top while, while others uh, like, like a them, you know, seem to have receded. Well, I'm interested in what both of you guys think, because, you know, I think it's very complicated. I think there's there's these different lanes that sometimes converge with one candidate, I think maybe like a Jabal Bowman, but they don't always converge with others. And that's ideology. It's, uh, you know, demography in terms of race and ethnicity. And a lot of these districts that have certainly become more diverse over decades, but continue to be represented often by white men. And that's just not where the constituency is anymore. Um, And then you have, you know, sort of like the political angles and the endorsements and things like that. And then you have generational change. And that's, you know, another aspect of demography, but I'm sort of separating race and ethnicity from, you know, sort of age. Um, You know, I think all these different lanes are combining uh, in some cases to, to catapult some of these candidates where you don't always have such clear-cut distinctions in a race like Bunkadeco Clark, for example. That's they're just not the same distinctions as a Bowman angle. But I do think overall, to your question, and again, I'm very interested, you know, what you guys think. Um, I absolutely think this we're looking at a, a wave here, a second wave, like we saw in 2018, where so many of these, you know, activist groups and, and, you know, the Working Families Party and even the Democratic Socialists of America, but lots of others that don't always get the same name recognition. Um, and I'm not going to name them all right now, but people can find them on like the websites of the candidates who they've endorsed and their own. But, um, you know, like Make the Road Action, for example, and some of these others, um, you know, they're putting in this work behind these candidates where they are just, you know, sort of able to overwhelm 
uh, the entrenched incumbents a little bit unless they're really able to get a, a, a network going to, to help them hold on to their seats. Well, so Ben, I want to ask you about absentee ballots because when we were, when the three of us were together two years ago uh, and looking at the Maloney, Clark, Crowley districts, and we know that AOC was victorious and uh, Bedenko and Patel came close, but no cigars. This time, as you mentioned, uh, Adem in Brooklyn was not able to uh, unseat Yvette Clark and quite honestly did worse than he did two years ago. But Suraj Patel, uh, it's too soon to tell whether or not he'll be victorious just because of absentee ballots. How much do you think, um, and, and we know that there's something about the shifting of the guard and age dynamics and, and sort of certain New Yorkers wanting more progressive representation in Washington, D.C., but how much do you think uh, with Maloney's district in particular, uh, is it because most of her, many people in her district, not most, many people in her district may be in the Hamptons or someplace not on the Upper East Side and possibly did not vote or uh, bother to to get an absentee ballot? Yeah. I think the absentee balloting in, in New York 12, Maloney's district, um, is just, is such a wild card. I mean, I know that Suraj Patel and even some of the other candidates and and that one actually has a very interesting wrinkle where there were four candidates this time instead of two. And one of the others, Lauren Ashcraft, actually pulled double digit percentage of the vote here. It looks like at least in the in-person voting. And it's not totally clear that those would have been Patel voters. I have to say, I think people too quickly think that all the challenger voters, you know, would have been split among the are from the challengers. But um, I know that Patel had a very active absentee voting operation going, but I think Maloney did as well. And I really, it's very hard to know how those ballots will break. I think there's a pretty good chance that a lot of longstanding Maloney voters did request their absentee ballots and did vote absentee. I don't know about any, you know, what the Patel voters really will look like in terms of the absentee voting. Um, so I think that's a huge wild card and I don't have any way of predicting that race. Speaking of wild cards, it's fascinating to think, you know, Maloney's at like 40 odd percent there. Tell the same, like how this could have played out with ranked choice voting as that becomes a reality in New York and not, not in these contests. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about ranked choice voting, especially actually in the 15th, right, with the huge crowded field and, you know, Richie Torres got like 30% of the in-person vote. And, you know, again, we'll see what happens with the absentees, but, you know, that ranked choice voting is kind of designed to make sure that nobody wins with 30% of the vote that you, you know, you have to sort of make those other choices and then they get tallied up. So somebody shows more of a sort of broad appeal than that. So I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, I don't know, again, in, you know, in the, in the Maloney district, going back to what I was saying, you know, that's a question of, okay, let's take Lauren Ashcraft, who is, you know, sort of a, uh, a the furthest left candidate, or she was competing with the fourth candidate in the race, Pete Harrison, sort of as the far left candidate in the race. I don't know, you know, her voters, I don't know if their second choice is, is Maloney or Patel. I, I don't know that we can totally say that. So I think it is an interesting question of, of ranked choice voting, but we're not going to see that, I don't think, in congressional primaries anytime soon. Okay, so I've been patient long enough. I want to talk more about New York 15. <laughs> um, Here, I want to hear your, what do you, what do you think? Well, <laughs> um, this is the podcast version, not the Chrissy Harry Ben text version. So <laughs> the podcast version is this. Um, 
I'm curious as to a few things. What happens to the Diaz dynasty? Seems as though it's kind of gone out with with a, more of a whimper. And I wasn't necessarily anticipating that from Junior. And I thought Diaz Sr. honestly might do a little better than he did, just because there were so many progressive candidates. I'm curious as to what is the future for most of Mark Riverito, especially if Joe Biden does not win the presidency, sort of where does she go politically, if any place at all? Um, I'm curious as to what Michael Blake does next, because it's apparent that he wasn't that interested in Albany um, because he ran, you know, so he was helping the DNC. He ran for mm-hmm. public advocate. He ran for Congress. It was like anything to not be in Albany. Sure. But uh, now that he is just going to ride out the rest of his term, I'm curious as to whether that he'll leave politics completely or run for another seat in two years. Um, yeah. And then what it means for Richie Torres to be such a young member of Congress um, going in, I, um, Laura Namias last night on New York One with us said that, you know, he's a pragmatic progressive. And I think that that's such a, an apt uh, term to use. I mean, he's not part of the AOC uh, left wing of the Democratic Party, but he will be coming in as a freshman. But he does have some electoral experience, unlike, say, a Bowman or an AOC. Um, right. So there's a certain level of um I think just political knowledge that he brings to the table um, and willingness to compromise for better or for worse uh, with the establishment Democrats who were there and many of whom he already knows just from, from being a city council member for so long. So I'm just yeah. fascinated by that. So I'm also fascinated yeah. that Ruben Diaz senior would not speak to uh, Juan Manuel Benitez from yeah. New York one. Uh, we know that he has a long standing history of, uh, homophobia and really egregious, offensive, homophobic marks that he said to one male to his face, but also uh, so much so that he was reprimanded and um, punished by the city council. So I thought that that was also an interesting yeah. kind of fizzle out of his career uh, as, a, as a candidate for Congress. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up about how he treated one man well, because that was, you know, pretty inappropriate. Um, he has senior seemed very upset at, at his uh, election event, uh, not doing anywhere near as well as he thought he was going to. You know, I think it was really fascinating to watch that because Diaz Jr. was there as well and didn't want to talk. And as you sort of alluded to, the fact that we've seen in just a short time Diaz Jr. say he's not running for mayor when everybody expected him to be in the race and a top tier candidate. And then you have Diaz Sr. apparently losing this bid for Congress. You know, it really is quite a quite a demise for for the Diaz um, dynasty there, except... Ben, hold on really quickly. It's not that he's just not running for mayor. He said he's leaving politics. Yeah, he's right. He's out. Yeah, yeah, not much else for him to do unless I guess he was going to run for, you know, city controller or something, but I don't think that was on his -hmm. his dance card. Um, Yeah, you know, I mean, Diaz Sr. can uh, run for another term in the city council, and I think he probably will do that, and that'll be right away, you know, on a lot of people's radars for uh, Amanda Farias, who was a challenger to him last time around and didn't get a lot of support from people. Um, I think you're going to see a huge groundswell behind her this time around if if Diaz Sr. does indeed run for re-election to the city council. Um, you know, just quickly on the other people you mentioned, I'll just try to give a quick thought on each. You know, I think Richie Torres coming into Congress, uh, young, uh, you know, really smart, uh, he'll, he might be among others now in this class with Mondair Jones winning in Westchester, the first uh, black and LGBT member of Congress. Um, you know, he, he will come from representing the poorest congressional district in the country. 
He has a background living in public housing. You know, he is going to have to really deliver for his constituents, but also he's potentially going to be really a new face and a new voice of, you know, how uh, Congress and the federal government address things like public housing and, and poverty. And he's got a real opportunity to make those issues his signature issues. And from everything, you know, I've seen of him in the city council, he, he probably will be. I think the question you got out for him is sort of a matter of exactly where he fits in with the Democratic caucus, exactly what kind of style he sort of brings to it. This, he's not really a, you know, a bombastic uh, type of guy, but he does really deliver some sharp, sharp stuff at times. So he'll be very interesting to watch in terms of what he makes his signature issues and what kind of approach he takes. Um, for Michael Blake, you know, my my initial thought is that um, he'll either try to work in a Biden administration if there is one or, you know, there's a Bronx borough president race in 2021 that he could easily jump into. So he might have another uh, a race in his future here. Uh, you know, he's a talented guy. He did OK in this race. He did not do well in the public advocate race he ran in. So, you know, we'll see what happens with him. Um and then Melissa Mark Viverito, I just, you know, after how poorly things went for her in the public advocate race and now this one, I don't know that there's an electoral future for her. I don't know what she would run for. I don't know, um, you know, that she can put herself out there again soon. Uh, maybe she can take a little time and go, you know, go back into some political work in a different way. Um, but I think it's been, a, you know, a tough uh, couple of years for her. Mm -hmm. Ben, do you want to... Uh if you want to dig in for a minute to some of these local races, there was a lot of interesting action in Queens for starters. And uh, what 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 stood out for you? All right, let me let me see if I can do this in like a minute or less. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think listen, there's several assembly state assembly races, mostly in like Western Queens. I won't go into all the details, but you see candidates backed by you know basically sort of the left. Uh, left-wing insurgency of the Working Families Party and, and many other groups, as I was saying before, and a lot of elected officials who are now saying, you know, I'm, we're going to go with the challengers who are more representative of the district. They have uh, ideology that we share. You know, it's not, you have elected officials who are not just sitting there and endorsing or staying out of the race. You know, they're not endorsing their fellow elected officials or staying out of the race. They're going with these challengers. And you know, that's been a, a, a pretty widespread shift, I think, and pretty interesting and, and says a lot also for the 2021 city elections coming up. But, um, you know, there's so there's several races in the assembly in Western Queens, some really interesting ones. And I won't go into all the details because there's like four or five of them. Um, the Queens borough president race is really interesting. You have uh, city council member Donovan Richards, who looks like he's in really good shape heading into the absentee ballot count. And so, you know, he'll be coming out of southeast Queens. He's made, you know, a lot of, uh, of, a, of a mark in the city council on environmental issues and police oversight stuff. And it'll be really interesting to see what he does as borough president. And I think he's probably got a, a bright future perhaps beyond that if he does win the seat. Um, and, and so, you know, that's a little bit of, of sort of the Queen's outlook. The only other thing I really want to highlight is um, there's a state Senate race in central Brooklyn which was an open seat. And, you know, these state Senate seats are, there's only 63 of them in the state, you know, and they're pretty coveted. And, and with the retirement of Bellman and Montgomery, there was this open race between three candidates, including a sitting assembly member who overlaps the district in a little, in a, in a part of it, Tremaine Wright. 
And it looks like the Democratic Socialist backed Working Families Party backed Jabari Brisport is going to run away with that uh, nomination and therefore the seat. And that's that's a pretty huge seismic victory for the DSA and the WFP there over a sitting assembly member trying to go to the Senate. And what's really interesting, I was sort of thinking about this last night as the results came in. If Jabari Brisport does go to the state Senate, you're going to have this really big swath of Brooklyn represented by uh, Julia Salazar and him that they're both like real DSA candidates. They're not just sort of candidates that the DSA kind of got behind. These are like longstanding Democratic Socialists of America uh, activists. And that's that's pretty interesting. Ben, looking backward for a second, do you see any of these races that could have played out differently from what we know so far, if not for the, uh, the social isolation and how that tampered with the election, and then maybe more significantly, the uh, George Floyd protests? Did that, did that uh, just change the, uh, the ground under anyone's feet, in your view? I think, I think the, the protests, I would say, probably did. I mean, this is hard stuff to prognosticate. I'm just giving you my sense of things. You know, I think, I think the fact that people were so locked down and you had campaigns, you know, campaigns were doing their thing and stuff, but, but these protests got people back out into the streets in such a significant way with so much energy that I think that energy in some ways also translated into the final, you know, sort of get out the vote weeks. And that is a huge confluence of events that you saw, you know, so much energy around politics and, you know, uh, political issues that you also saw in many instances, candidates of color getting really buoyed by all the activism to overcome in some instances, not in all, but in some instances, like I said earlier, you know, older white candidates who've been around a while and represent districts that, you know, they don't really, uh, come that close, you know, in the same way to the demography of the districts. Now I've got a a quick question for you. And this is the, I agree with that. I, I think that we're seeing a lot more descriptive and substantive representation over time. And we'll see how that chips away as, you know, folks in Washington continue to protect their colleagues and are sort of out of step with what's actually going on in a district. We'll also see how voting shakes out when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic and there's not as much confusion and misinformation. But um, I wanted to ask about uh, Diana Richardson's district um, yeah. and for state assembly, because we see uh, former state senator Jesse Hamilton, who was ousted by newcomer Zellner Myrie two years ago. Um, and he decided to run essentially still in his district before the legislature seat as opposed to the Senate seat. Um, where does his career go since it seems as though uh, he was not successful last night? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesse Hamilton was a member of the Independent Democratic Conference of the State Senate, you know, which every, uh, you know, everybody on the left kind of got uh, pretty sick of um, a few years back and decided to really do something about. It. And that's where he was unseated, at, among others, in that 2018 primary. And for him to, you know, try this comeback and lose in an assembly race to Diana Richardson, I don't see much future for Jesse Hamilton, but, you know, people um, run for all sorts of things and make a comeback. You know, there's going to be a whole city election cycle coming up and we'll see. There's obviously um, a variety of city council seats that are opening up, including one in that in that overlapping area. 
And then there's, you know, things like Brooklyn Borough President, which I don't think you can lose a state Senate race and a state assembly race and run for a borough wide seat. But, you know, there's a lot of seats coming up. So I don't know. Never underestimate the the power of a man who wants to be in office. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't don't think we've seen the last necessarily of Jesse Hamilton, but I think it's a it's a pretty tough go for him now to, to figure out what the next thing might be. But, you know, I do think I do think that that one was a little bit indicative, too, of the fact that. You know, I think people are really awake and people are really paying a lot of attention, even amidst these these crises, um, you know, to what's going on now. I think between stuff that happened just in New York with the IDC and Cuomo Nixon and stuff like that, but also obviously the just the fallout from Trump's election, you know, has really, really shifted the ground here a lot. Well, I feel like politicians have to represent their districts. They have to uh, they have to run in a way that hasn't always been the case. Obviously, I think Engel may end up being the uh, the poster boy uh, for some of this. Um, as Yeah, right after Joe Crowley was, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Joe Crowley, you know, didn't show up to one of his debates. Engel shows up at this rally and says, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. It's all, all other politics aside, it's very satisfying for me to see people who can't just lean on a uh, stature and position, uh, but have to explain what they're doing and what their ideas are and sort of have, have this ongoing fight about the limits of what's possible and what people want from their, their government. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just, yeah, I'll just say, you know, real quickly, like there, there, there is clearly a massive amount of energy out there across the country, you know, and I think it, a lot of it was spurred, you know, again, on, on the left, there's a lot of energy, you know, on the right as well. Um, but, you know, we're in New York talking about Democratic primaries, mostly, you know, a lot of it spurred by by Trump's election, but also, you know, the frustration, there's a lot of built up frustration of people that government is really not um, meeting their needs and is in some cases not going far enough or is in some cases, you know, too beholden, even on the Democratic side to you know, campaign donors and, and things like that. So, you know, there's a massive amount of energy where people are really on notice now in terms of like, you know, you have to deliver and you have to be on the ground in your district and you have to be meeting the moment. So just let's, let's end on a bipartisan note. Um, what are you expecting from uh, Nicole Maliotakis, who usually won her primary uh, when she takes on uh, Max Rose in November? What 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 do I think of Malatakis's chances of taking out Max Rose? Yeah, yeah. This that, is going to be interesting November race. We still oh, it's going to be absolutely. This is going to be a race that has widespread national attention on it. I mean, this is going to be one of the top ten you know races to watch in the country in the in the congressional general election. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest questions really is. Um, how the the South Shore uh, of Staten Island, you know, sort of responds when Trump's back on the ballot, and and you know the the South Shore of Staten Island is excited to reelect him, versus the North Shore, where you know you probably have a huge um, turnout likely for Joe Biden as a Democratic nominee, and then the portion of the district that's in Brooklyn that really helped you know, make the difference for Rose last time will probably come out huge again for Biden and Rose. You know, I think one of the most outstanding question marks is 
whether in that district you'll see some Trump rose voters. And my sense is that there will be actually a, a fairly significant number of those because I do think Max Rose is is pretty popular. He's got some issues with some of the folks on the sort of center right and far right about, you know, voting for impeachment and things like that. But I think he's fairly popular, popular. And, you know, just going back to what we were talking about before, people wanting to see their elected representatives like in the district and working hard. And I don't think there's too many concerns from what I can tell about Max Rose in that respect. Right. So he's got that going for him. I do think, um, you know, I do think there will even be some Trump Rose voters. And, you know, I don't I don't think Molly and talk is, you know, we'll see how the elected officials and the sort of political and civic Republican infrastructure rally behind her, because I think there's I think there will be some interesting number of Trump Rose voters. I think one of the biggest outstanding questions is whether the sort of political and civic Republican infrastructure really comes out strong behind Molly Atakis because she hasn't been that popular among some of the boroughs uh, Republican elected officials. And I really get the sense that there's at least a couple of those that will wind up voting for Rose and they might be Trump Rose voters. I don't think they'll say so publicly, but I think it'll be really interesting to see Molly Takis will probably get a lot of outside help from, you know, the, the National Republican uh, Committee. But I don't know on the ground how strong the operation will be. And maybe she'll be able to overcome that. But I think, you know, Rose is in pretty good position going in. And a lot of it will depend on how strong the district comes out um, for Biden. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's really great to spend every post-election night with you. Uh, breaking down the different races. Um, so we appreciate what you do. My and you can, obviously, uh, for folks who want to hear more, uh, Ben has his own podcast, Max and Murphy podcast, that you can hear Ben and uh, Mr. Murphy talk about New York politics as well. Well, I always appreciate you guys uh, having me on. And it's always good to talk with you. And I am uh, and always listening to your other episodes and enjoying those too. Thanks, Ben. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much. And now, shifting gears for a minute, let's go to the conversation Chrissy and I had with Eric Umansky. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Chrissy Greer. I'm here with my co-host, Harry Siegel. And today, we have Eric Umansky, uh, ProPublica Deputy Managing Editor. And we want to talk to him about a really fantastic piece he had in ProPublica entitled, My Family Saw a Police Car Hit a Kid on Halloween. Then I learned how NYPD immunity works, impunity works, excuse me. Um, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you're joining us from where again? Uh, I am right now in Woodstock, New York, uh, sitting by a creek. Okay. So that's the, the lovely uh, ambient noise that we hear in the background. Yeah. <laughs> so Harry and I were discussing your piece, and I got to say, Eric, when I was reading it, my blood pressure was through the roof. I had, I would argue, PTSD to a certain extent. Um, reading this piece, knowing what the outcome could have been. Um, so can you just tell our listeners just a little bit about the piece and kind of how you came to write it? Sure. So uh, I, I live in Brooklyn, um, and uh, last Halloween, uh, my um, family was, like a lot of folks, um, out trick-or-treating, and uh, we live in Carroll Gardens, um, and my wife and our six-year-old daughter were coming back from 
a friend's house and we're walking down uh, Court Street, which, you know, for folks who know it, is uh, the kind of main thoroughfare of the neighborhood um, and particularly busy um, on Halloween with lots of kids. And all of a sudden, um, she sees a couple kids, teenagers running and a um, NYPD unmarked uh, car going up Court Street, which is a one-way street, going up Court Street the wrong way. Um, and um, all of a sudden, uh, this kid tries to sort of run away, runs into the street, and the cop car hits him. Uh, the kid uh, flies onto the hood of the car. Cop car stops. Kid uh, smacks to the ground. You can sort of hear the crunching, uh, you know, of, of a kind of body hitting the ground. Um, and actually pops up and runs away. Um, and my wife and uh, daughter are watching all of this. Um, and uh, thus began what was just one of um, many troubling things uh, from the NYPD that night. Uh, what they then did was turn their attention actually to other kids um, who uh, were just nearby and didn't seem to have anything to do with the kids who were running. Um, they were younger, they were smaller, um, but they were also black. Um, and uh the police ended up um, arresting um, uh, three of those kids, um, you know, one of whom they tackled to the ground um, and either pointed a gun or a taser. They um, uh, took them to the station. Um, parents said the NYPD didn't notify uh, the families um, and held them for hours, um, didn't let the family see them. And your daughter was seeing all this just as these kids, a 12-year-old, right, and a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old are yep. being arrested. Yep, yep, yep. My daughter, six years old, um, uh, in first grade, was uh, watching all of it. And by the way, she wasn't the only little kid uh, watching it. Mm -hmm. um, some of the uh, kids uh, uh, who the police were questioning um, had been trick-or-treating with their families. Um, and so uh, a little girl about the same age as my daughter, um, uh, the little sister of one of the boys, um, was watching too. Um, and, uh, and so all of that happened. And, um, you know, I, my wife had told me to come out at some point and, and watch what happened. And, and um, I did. And I went to the station later and talk to family members. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not a, uh, a cop reporter, but I was left with a lot of questions. Um, and um, I tried to get the NYPD um, to, uh, to answer those questions. And basically what they uh, said was more or less, we didn't do anything wrong. In fact, what they eventually told me was um, what your wife and daughter saw, they didn't see. Um, that the NYPD car didn't hit uh, a kid. Um, that the kid uh, ran over the hood of a uh, stationary police car. I mean, literally, 
basically they were like the car didn't hit the kid the kid hit the car and, and this is from al baker right who's the, the deputy commissioner of public information yep former and new york times, former reporter. times reporter yep former times cop reporter yeah um and you know i, I had actually uh, uh never worked with uh al before but I, you know i knew his byline and um uh, and i figured you know, he'd give it to me straight. Quite frankly, I even emailed his Gmail account at first because I figured, well, maybe he's going to give me the like inside dope or whatever. Um, and, you know, he told me uh, what he told me. And, and I should point out, by the way, um, you know, I, I know people's memories are, are fallible. And though my wife didn't really appreciate it, I uh, was like, look, maybe, you know, it all happened in an instant. Maybe it didn't quite uh, happen as, you know, you kind of thought it did. Um, and she was like, I 100% thought I was standing feet away. But not only that, uh, I then um, canvassed the neighborhood. I, I went to like nearby restaurants and, and nearby stores. Um, and I, um, you know, spoke to other people who saw it. I ended up, there, there were four people, including my wife, for um who uh who saw it and one of whom uh a waiter told me he had um uh uh you know i basically went up to uh the restaurant and i said Do you guys see anything happen on halloween and uh, the guy said to me you mean the kid who got hit by the uh, police car um and uh you know he had a very clear view of it and ran through exactly uh what happened um, that, you know, then the police told me, um, all those people didn't see what they saw, what they thought they saw. And, and, and it was at that point, you know, that, um, uh, that to me ended up being indicative of something much larger, which, you know, as I wrote was, um, NYPD impunity. I then looked at how, well, how does discipline, uh, work? How is the NYPD held to account when police officers do something wrong? Um, and, uh, this, uh, civilian oversight board, the CCRB, um, a after I did a tweet storm about it, said that they were investigating. Um, and, um, and then I started talking to folks from the CCRB and I, I had kind of been pleased with myself and figured, yeah, well, my work here is done. The civilian oversight board is investigating, but in fact, no, the, um, NYPD has complete authority uh over um any discipline uh that could be handed out there the um civilian oversight board has none they make recommendations they make recommendations they make recommendations that uh the um NYPD and the commissioner can decide to overrule they can decide to downgrade they can by the way um take cases away from the CCRB before they even get to the point of re making recommendations. Harry, uh, just one more point in the story I want to get to, just as yeah. I know, uh, is, 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 you talked to one of the mothers of the uh, one of the boys who was arrested, and yep. you look for the police report about this, obviously, in the course of reporting. Can, can you talk about that conversation, your conversation with this teenager, Devon, as well? Yeah, so so I had been in touch with a number of the um, family members, again, trying to understand their story and, and trying to understand, by the way, the effect that this has had on all of them. Um, and I ended up sitting down with the, uh, this boy, Devrin, um, who's a very um, 
shy, quiet uh, uh, kid in ninth grade um, whose birthday was uh, the day before Halloween. Um, and uh, his mom, Davika, um, and um, uh, I talked to him about what had happened. Um, and, you know, one of the things is the kids had been released without being given any paperwork, without any, any records. Um, and the police had told me, uh, again, Al Baker had, had told me that um, they were going to be charged with um, something called obstructing government administration, which is essentially resisting arrest. Right? No underlying crime, but you were you were resisting arrest in some fashion. Um, and then I looked for records of that, and I could find no records of that. And uh, Devrin's mom also looked for no records. Uh, also looked for records of that, and she couldn't find any records. Um, and she should have been able to find records because she is, it turns out, a school safety officer, meaning she works uh, for the NYPD. Um, and uh, none of this stuff existed. Um, and, you know, that makes accountability even harder to come by because, as she said, I have no paperwork, I have no records, all I have is a story. Oh, so, so... Eric, before before we started recording, Harry and I were talking, and I was saying that your story reminded me of uh, what James Baldwin and, and Mark Twain often talk about, which is, you know, this racial violence that is just so um, part of the fabric of American society um, is not only detrimental to the people who are the victims, but the people who actually bear witness to it, um, as well as the perpetrators of this type of crime. And it also reminded me of being in college when people would, would go to the police and, and file reports of sexual assault, sexual misconduct, racial uh, misconduct, and then go back the next day to follow up and there was just nothing in the system as though you were just insane, right? It's like, but I, I talked to you yesterday, we filed a report and there was nothing there. So what we're getting more and more of these stories about we know that there's this under-reporting but you bring up an interesting point. It seems as though there's an undercounting too. I mean, we can't count what's not even there. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, there, there is. It, it is as if it went into a memory hole. And and look, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Carol Gardens is um, a uh, wealthy neighborhood, thick with journalists um, and with people eating out that night. Um, and, you know, um, I, my wife happened to be there and to, you know, take photos, um, lots of places, uh, where you don't happen to have, uh, journalists walking by, right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I will also tell you, I mean, very specifically in terms of undercounting. So, um, uh, Devrin uh, goes to this uh, school, uh, this great charter school in, in Red Hook that is um, uh, majority black and uh, brown kids. Um, and on the back of their student IDs is, um, uh, uh, is a little thing that says what to do if you're stopped by police. That's how common it is. It has instructions on the back of their student IDs. And so I asked the head of the school, um, a woman named Natasha Campbell, who's great, by the way. And I said to her, 
um, and, and help me arrange the meeting with Deborah. And I said to her, well, how many of your kids would you guess a year are stopped? She has about three or 400 students there. Um, and I had no idea. Um, and what she said to me was, you know, I, I guess, I guess at least 40%. And then she stopped and said, actually, those are just the cases I know about. I bet you it's higher. Um, and we actually at ProPublica at one point um, tried to pull police data on stops in the area. Um, and we found um, a uh, uh, very few incidents recorded. Now, it's possible uh, that Ms. Campbell is not correct in the number. Um, it's also possible that the uh, NYPD is undercounting. Um, and, you know, one other bit of context is last week, uh, a week and a half ago, the Civilian Oversight Board just came out with a report on um, on NYPD treatment of black and brown kids. And what they found was a significant pattern of of um, of uh, targeting of those kids and kids being arrested for things like um, uh, they said, you know, having a bulging backpack, um, high fiving. These are literally from the report. Um, carrying and throwing sticks. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there are serious questions to ask there. <sighs> Eric, just one more question for you here is what, uh, as somebody who doesn't do police reporting regularly, you know, who saw what seemed to be a fairly straightforward sequence of events and then it seems to get murkier and murkier the further into official channels you go. What 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 uh struck you as different from other reporting you've done? What 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 did you find parallels in and trying to report on the NYPD and a specific arrest? So you know, I, I, uh, as you say, I'm not a cops reporter. Hell, I'm not even really a reporter at all. I uh, basically basically you know move words around at ProPublica and go to meetings uh, now on Zoom. Um, and you know I'm an editor, and um, so so I um, uh, you know just did the the basic um, stuff, and um, if I had simply you know relied on the what the police statement said, I mean I have to say it had very little uh, relation to. Um, what my family saw and to what other people saw. So it didn't take like particularly advanced reporting or anything. I, I just, um, uh, I just spoke to people and I spoke to people about what they saw and, um, and I didn't leave it, uh, to the police, uh, to simply use their account. Um, and I will say it I, I, to add, I want the police's account. I mean, I desperately want to hear, um, their perspective and understanding of things. And um, even now, when I was doing this story, I reached out to the NYPD with a detailed list of questions, not just about that night, but about um, NYPD uh, oversight and how discipline works. Um, I sent them detailed questions four times. I sent them the story uh, yesterday once it came out and said, you know, if you guys have any comment, please uh, let me know. I'd be eager to hear it. Um, and uh, all to Al Baker, too, and I have not heard back. So, so Eric, just really quickly, um, 
what I and I know you're not a cops reporter, but you know, having experienced this and you I mean, you actually followed up, you, you know, tried to get to the bottom of things. Um what do you think needs to be done? Because it seems like there's a failure on the precinct level. There's clearly a failure at the larger NYPD leadership, but there are also some gaps in what the CCRB can provide and does provide. So what would be your recommendation? To me, what this really highlighted is um, uh, that there's an area of, um, of you know, sort of changing the police um, where there hasn't yet been um, uh, scrutiny, as much scrutiny as there's been in some other areas. So, you know, 50A, this police, uh, this law that shielded uh, NYPD and police discipline across the state from being disclosed, made it literally illegal to disclose it. That's been repealed. And so now we can uh, know uh, about which police have been disciplined uh, and not. But you know, there's this fundamental question, and this is what my piece, piece, I'm sorry, gets at, of what, how does discipline work? And even more fundamentally, um, who oversees the NYPD really? Is there true civilian oversight? Because right now, the system as it works is that the NYPD has full authority over disciplining the NYPD, right? And um, uh, civilians in, in practice don't really. Um, and I think that's a conversation to be had. And that's not just about, you know, culture. It's about literally rules built into the system and uh, this discretion that the NYPD has um, uh, and power has. Um, that is that is baked into things, and I, I think it's a you know discussion worth having about whether or not that should change. Hmm. Eric, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time and going through this. Um, I strongly encourage readers, uh, listeners, to go to ProPublica and read the piece. My family saw a police car at a kid on Halloween. Then I learned how NYPD impunity works. Thank you guys very much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, enjoy, enjoy the creek. Thank you very much. FAQ. Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer, and my co-host is Harry Siegel. We are normally brought to you by NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but during the quarantine, we're coming to you from the great states of Delaware and New York. We want to thank our guests this week, Eric Umansky from ProPublica. He's the deputy managing editor there. And Ben Max, the editor of Gotham Gazette, and also the co-host of the Max and Murphy podcast. As always, our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and our producer is Adam Kamara. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe.